Now joining us on Houston Sports Talk, Mike Acosta. He's the Astros Authentication Manager and Team Historian. And it's great to have you with us, Mike. And just so people know, explain exactly what it is that you do. Thanks, Robert, for, for having me on. Uh, well, I am in charge of watching a lot of baseball, keeping track of what we do <laughs> on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, I say that every game that we play is like another little chapter in Astros history because you never know what's going to come out of a game. So that being said, I, I, it's part of the authentication, MLB authentication. Uh, I incorporate that program into our team here where we pull game-used equipment. So that, that includes baseballs, bats, hats, uniforms, jerseys, you name it. I mean, anything, even dirt that was used on the field where a player you know, like Jose Altuve may have gotten his thousandth hit, you know, in the, the batter's box that night, or dirt from Tal's Hill, you know, when we dug that out over the offseason this past year. Everything uh, that touches uh, our game uh, that's part of our stadium, that is part of milestones uh, or simple, you know, attachments to, to give fans a connection, a closer connection to the game. And ballpark experience here, that's that's what I watch. And so we we use the MLB authentication program to certify all of those items. And so we put a hologram on a daily basis. And, you know, we, we probably do, I'd say, uh, 50 to sometimes 100 items a day. But we have different avenues that these items go to. The first one is, like I mentioned, the, the access for the fans. So we have an Astros Authentic store in our center field area, and that store has all of the, these items. You can walk in there and you see a treasure trove of, of Astros history and, and memorabilia from years past, but you also see game-used jerseys from you know Jose Altuve and George Springer and Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman, Dallas Keuchel, and all the, the wonderful you know, athletes that we have on this club. And you can, you can buy a foul ball. I mean, if you don't catch one in the stands that night, you know, we send up on average probably 12 to 20 baseballs a night to the store. And then if we get some later in the game as well, we, we do that. And uh, it, it, it just brings, a, a, like I said, a, a better ballpark experience for the fans who, who really love that. The other avenue is giving milestones to the players. Like last night, we had Derek Fisher, who made his major league debut. We got his home run ball from the Crawford boxes. There was a fan out there who was extremely, you know, in a class act and, and very nice guy, uh, returned that ball to us. We gave him a couple autograph balls and a couple of game used baseballs from the debut last night. Uh, and we gave that ball to, to Derek, along with some other game used baseballs for the game so he could take and give to his family and keep it, you know, for, for, uh, you know, future mementos of his major league debut. Uh, and then we also archive stuff. So we have a, a storage area here at, at Minute Maid Park where we keep the history of the club. And so you can go back and, and, you know, the, some of the things that we have in there range from, uh, you know, Gene Elston's travel suit from the 1960s with the Colt 45s when they used to wear the, the Western outfits. We have a, a 1959 Houston Buffs uniform in there. Uh, we have Carlos Correa's Major League debut jersey in there. We have, uh, you know, George Springer's first, you know, uh, playoff uniform that, that's in there as well. Jose Altuve, when he broke Craig Biggio's hits record, single season hits record in 2014, we have almost every ball from above 200. Uh, you know, he got 225 that year, I think. I think it was that year. 
And so we have a lot of those in there too. So it's just a, a huge amount <laughs> of stuff. So I oversee the authentication program, uh, the, the Astros Authentic store, the stuff that goes to the store and kind of uh, design with that and what we sell over there and trying to, to, to keep it fresh and also the archives. You know, hopefully we can put all this stuff on display and uh, have the, the fans come out to some sort of uh, Astros Hall of Fame exhibit here at Minute Maid Park in the future. You know, we've, we've done a lot of internal groundwork on that, but we'll, we'll see where that goes here in the future. And, but that's, that's kind of what I do. I just kind of uh, watch what we do on a daily basis, and I plan ahead because you never know what's going to happen in a, in a ball game if you have a no-hitter or something else, and you have to react to that. It's, it's very time-sensitive, but we have to react in a way where it's, it's a natural reaction to what happens on the field. You know, we don't want to become a detraction from, from what's happening on the field. So it's a very busy, very detail-oriented position that I have. <laughs> well, it sounds extremely cool. I, I know there's Astros fans out there that are going, man, that sounds like a fun job to, to get. How, how do I get one of those jobs? We don't want to take the job away from you, Mike, but I would like to <laughs> ask you, how does someone get a job like yours? How, how did this happen for you? Well, you know, it, it happened, I guess, real natural. You know, I went up to the Astrodome and dropped off a resume. You know, I was looking for anything in the broadcast department or baseball operations, you know, just anything I could get. And, and so I wound up getting an internship right away. Like the, the day, the next day after I dropped off the resume, I got a call. Two weeks later, I was hired by the broadcasting department as a broadcast intern. And so there I was working with Milo Hamilton and Alan Ashby and Bill Brown, Jim Deshays, and our producer engineer, Mike DeLuce Cannon, was there. And it was amazing. But, you know, I grew up in Houston. I was an Astros buddy. And always a fan of the Astros since I was a toddler and, you know, basically grew up going to the Astrodome. And so when I was a kid, you know, I, I guess there was a, yeah, I, I just remember going to the Astrodome and being fascinated, you know, walking into the dome from a hot parking lot, uh, feeling the rush of air conditioning, you know, as you open up the doors and walk in and then you see the bright green AstroTurf field and the rainbow uniforms, you know, the orange seats and just just the way it was designed. I mean, there was something real fascinating about it. You know, and of course, as I got older and, you know, you kind of watch WGN and the Cubs are on or you watch t uh, TBS and the Braves are on and it's it's outdoors and they're talking about Wrigley Field and the Ivy and how historic it is, you know. It's kind of the way we did it here in Houston with the Astrodome and kind of growing up with that. That to us, that was the way it's just like it's it's no different. But the way everybody felt about Wrigley Field, that's the way everybody felt about going to the games in the Astrodome here is the way Houston did it. So growing up in that atmosphere, I was very curious. And in school, there were many projects that I did that were baseball or Astros related and, you know, writing stories about Nolan Ryan or doing research, you know, when I learned who Roy Hoffines was. But I also really wondered, okay, if we have a, a dome stadium here that we play indoors, why do we have a dome stadium? Like, how did they build it here, but not somewhere else? And why do we have rainbow uniforms? Why, why, you know, why? Just a bunch of questions. So I spent a lot of time in the library doing a lot of research. You know, this is a time, of course, where, you know, you could not find uh, anything real quick like you can on the internet. And not that a lot of stuff on the internet is true, but it took a lot more effort to, to find out that information back then. A lot of microfilm that I looked at, books that I checked out relating to baseball and the Astros and, and trying to find out why, you know, how do we even get the Astros here at Houston? So all that was, was very fascinating. And by the time I, I got hired by the Astros, uh, that that basic knowledge, the roster and the history of the, the team and 
the stadiums and everything involved, they sort of naturally started to place me into these projects where it started out where we were checking. I was double checking stats on the back of baseball cards, you know, that we were producing internally, kind of like those. uh, We used to do the mother's cookies baseball cards and right, right. Uh, th- things like that, just to make sure that the photo matched, the uniform number matched. That first year that I was here, which was the last year in the, in the Astrodome, we also were doing team collections of game-used uh, uniforms, and I was making sure that we got everybody. So I was there in the clubhouse uh, you know, working with Jamie Hildreth. He's the one who hired me for the Astros, who, who passed away, unfortunately, and he was our director of broadcasting at the time. And he hired me. And so I was in the clubhouse with him and, and he kind of placed me into that position where he's like, you know, this this kid knows a lot about the, the team. Let's let's get him involved with, with some of these things. So it, it just evolved there. When we moved here to the new ballpark in 2000, I remained in that position, which was at that time more of a part time, full time <laughs> position. Uh, but to really come on full time, I had to go into guest services. I moved into ticket sales and then the authentication. They said, you know what? Now we want you to go ahead and leave the ticket sales and everything else alone. Focus on this new thing that's kind of expanding in Major League Baseball called authentication. And in 2001, when they installed the authentication program, I started working with those guys. And at that time, they were accountants. They were not police officers like we use that now. So in uh, from 01 to 05, they were the accountants. 06, they brought Major League Baseball brought the authentication program into the security program. So now we were working with uh, police officers and, and only because they wanted to keep and maintain the integrity of the program. And police officers are used to a chain of custody type of uh, procedure. And that's exactly what they wanted here. There, it's with MLB authentication. It's not like where you can go to a memorabilia show or a dealer somewhere and say, "Hey, I have this autograph of Jeff Bagwell. I would like to see if I can get it authenticated and have a sticker put on it." We don't do that in, in MLB authentication. They have to witness everything. That also really dictates how we do things now and how we've grown the, the program here with the Astros. So you can't just make a judgment call on whether or not that that's a, a game use Craig Biggio jersey or you know the, the, the Jeff Bagwell. They have to see it. It has to be there. That's when they uh, they authenticate it and place the hologram, and we put all the special notes that are associated with that. So really from 2009 is where – I've been focusing on what I, you know, and growing to to kind of what it is today, and there's still aspirations to grow it even more. So that's that's kind of the way it just sort of evolved. It wasn't anything that you know I, I applied at the Astros and said, "Hey, I want to work in authentication," because that wasn't really a a term that was used. You know, I was doing broadcasting and communications, and that's one of the other things that I've done here too. Is I've been able to to do the uh, public address announcing when Bob Ford's not here. So usually if, if he can't make it to a game, it'll be me that steps in and we'll do the PA for the game that night. Yeah, Bob Ford, friend of the show, he, he introduces our podcast every week. I, I use Bob and, and he's great. Let me ask you something that you talked about a little bit earlier. You, you brought up and I think that caught people's ear that are Astros fans if they didn't know. You're working on an Astros Hall of Fame. What can you tell us about What's going on with the Astros Hall of Fame and when we might see it? I've been advocating this for a number of years, and it's something that, you know, we've gone through ownership changes and and executive changes over the years. But from the get-go, I mean, even if you (laughs) – 
I was just looking through some of my research yesterday, back from 1982, and the old Hoffines apartment that used to be in the Astrodome in Wright Field. By 1982, they weren't really using it. I mean, Hoffines, he actually, you know, he passed away in late 82, and he was no longer the owner of the Astros. And the Astros at that time were looking to create an Astros Hall of Fame and possibly using, restructuring some of that, that private apartment in, in Wright Field for that. And that would have been the, the 20th anniversary of the, the club at that point. It's been discussed for, for many, many years, but there, I think there's a lot of other factors that are involved. It's, it's what kind of presentation are we going to do? Who's going to organize it? I've been tagged with that duty here over the past few years and kind of laying out the groundwork, which is a, uh, a labor of love for me. And it's a, you know, baseball is a, a language that I, I feel that I speak very well and, and, you know, knowing the history of the club. So kind of laying out how we would present it, uh, the story of our franchise, uh, the archives that we have, the, the, the other types of, of uh, tools that we have, such as audio uh, archives, video archives, how we can incorporate that and create something that is interactive. But uh, again, there are other logistics that, that come into play, such as more recently, what is the master plan for Minute Maid Park? You know, we've, we've gone through some renovations here on the, the main concourse, you know, where they, they came in, they redid the, the Diamond Club. They've done work to the club level. We obviously just completed the center field project. And so now there, there are other projects, too. And in the midst of that, there's the talk of, of the Astros Hall of Fame. So getting out ahead of that and doing the prep work and how we would do it uh, has been my job. And so I've been kind of steering that internally and, and keeping that conversation going and see where that rests along the lines with the master plan of the ballpark. And if you, if you kind of think uh, of where we're at in the history of the Astros at Minute Maid Park, you know, we are in year 18 here in this ballpark of 30 years, and we have 12 years left. It seems that we're going to be here for, for a good long while. The capital improvements have been made to, to the ballpark, and like I mentioned, the renovations that Jim Crane's ownership has put into the, the ballpark. So it seems that we're going to be here for, for a good while. So I think uh, establishing uh, a Hall of Fame somewhere here on site, uh, and, and there's – Location is very big. It's you know where do you put it? From some standpoint, it's still a little early on it. From other standpoints, look, I have, I mean, personally, I have a, a vision of what this would look like. You know, where you walk into an area where you, where you see a diorama of Colt Stadium, you see the the uniforms. You know, you can hear Gene Elston calling the the game at Colt Stadium. You can hear the the Colt 45s fight song. You know, then you walk into another room and you. It has a domed ceiling. It looks like the Astrodome from the outside. There's a replica of the scoreboard firing off. You know, you see the the great games. There's an in, there's a interactive sort of notion to to it. I mean, it's it, I, I can see where we can take this, but from an organization standpoint, we need to to have alignment on on everything. And so that's what we've been working through, and just making sure that that project fits into the master plan project of of Minute Maid Park. This is more than a year or two away, I gather, from what you're saying. It could be. Realistically, I think that, you know, if we had to do it in less than a year, we could. I've done a lot of work behind the scenes where, but there, there are certain tools that, that I would like to use in, in a Hall of Fame. And, and I mentioned the, the video archives. Over the past year and a half, we've been going through a, a project, a, a very large scale project, where we've been working with a, a company here in Houston who 
has been doing a wonderful job at, at digitizing our archives. Every few weeks and over the, the past you know, several months, I mean, like I said, they've been working on this project for a year and a half. We, we get, you know, I get to, to log in and, and look at where, what they're uncovering and, and see more things that I feel that we can use in a, in a Hall of Fame. So uh, there, are, there are still tools that, that remain to, to be it's, – it's like these little gifts on Christmas morning you know <laughs> you know you you open them up and it's then you know that there's an application for those and, and that would be uh through marketing through hall of fame through branding in the stadium i mean there's there's all sorts of opportunities for for this stuff to be used a lot of the stuff fans have never seen before and it's it's great i mean i was just looking at a a video that was shot in the astros clubhouse uh in 1997 when the night that they clinched the division and it was just a, it was, it was a camera that was stationed in the clubhouse and you could see the clubhouse guys getting the champagne ready and putting the plastic over the locker stalls. And, and then the, you know, the, the, the game ended, you could hear the, the radio broadcast, the game ended, the players started to slowly file in after they were celebrating on the field. And then the celebration ensued in the clubhouse. And it was really great because, uh, it was a, a point of view that the fans have never really been able to see. You know, a Hall of Fame type project or something similar to that would uh, would enhance that ballpark experience in the, in the way that, that uh, you know, the authentication and Astros Authentics, you know, really enhances the, the visit to Minute Maid Park. Well, for our listeners, you're at Astros Talk on Twitter. And, hey, I always love the fun facts that you put up there. And just to give everybody a couple of examples from some of your tweets uh, this year, uh, one of them said, quote, Cubs and future Astros manager Leo DeRocher rips a phone off the dugout wall during an 8-4 Astros win at the Astrodome. He was billed for it. Uh, (laughs) Another one was uh, the Colt 45s beat the Giants at Colt Stadium in Major League Baseball's first ever night game, which is that that's a fact I I definitely didn't know. So that was pretty cool. And then uh, my last favorite one that you had up there was uh, on June 5th, 2000, a cab driver mistakenly took David Ortiz who was then with the twins to the Astrodome and he wound up an hour late to the proper stadium and, of course, uh, th- that stadium would have been Minute Maid Park, which is where they were by that point. And, and Mike, I apologize if I'm going to put you on the spot, but do you have a few favorite bits of Astros trivia over the last few years that you've discovered? I guess one, one thing that just came to my mind right now was back in the 60s, so they, when they opened up the Astrodome, and they had the skyboxes, 53 skyboxes on, on the top level, level nine. Roy Hoffines felt that they could put the most expensive seats in the house at the very above the upper deck. And, and a lot of people thought that was nuts at the time. But he proved that that was right with these private boxes. But in, in the, then they had a private restaurant called the Skydome Club up there. And it was a Japanese steakhouse with, you know, these uh, wallscapes of the universe and black lights. And they had these invisible clear chairs, you know, that people could sit in to where it kind of simulated like they were floating in space and all this luxury that, that was up there. And, and, and it was prevalent throughout the Astrodome. But Alan Shepard was um, a partner in one of these skyboxes and he loved hot dogs. And that was of all the things that they had up on the skybox level, they didn't sell hot dogs. They had them down on the upper deck, which was another two floors down. So he asked the uh, the server in the suite in the skybox if you know, hey, I'll give you some money. Could you run down there and pick up some hot dogs 
for for us up here. And, and the server went down there and said, yes, Mr. Shabby. So he brought him back up. But then what, what happened was uh, Alan Shepard brought his own hot dog machine. It was a little bun warmer and a little roaster and everything and set it up in the, the skybox. And back then, the air serve was a concessionaire at the Astrodome. His name, if I remember correctly, his name was Frank Keough, I believe. I'm almost 100% certain. Frank Keough. So he was like the director of, of AeroServe back then, the, the concessionaire. He's like, oh, we can't have any outside food coming into the to the uh, the stadium. And, and uh, you know, he kind of refused and, and told Alan Shepard he couldn't have it here. Well, Alan Shepard was real good friends with Roy Hoffines. Alan Shepard was one of the guys that Roy Hoffines called and said, look – we're gonna we're changing the name of the team from Colt Forty Fives. We're thinking of we've narrowed it down to either Stars or Astros, and and you know that's that's the type of guy that Alan Shepard was to Roy Hoffines. I mean he he confided in him and and actually uh, valued opinions and and such. So when he found out Roy Hoffines was called by Alan Shepard, and you know Roy Hoffines is in his private suite in right field, and Alan Shepard's up on the skybox level, he's hey this guy you know we're over here and we can't have these hot dogs and we're starving and. Roy Hoffines goes over there and shows up in the skybox and says, no, it's okay. It's totally okay. And uh, let him have the hot dogs. You know, we don't, we don't have hot dogs up here. And, and so they, they, you know, AeroSurf changed their tune. And Shepard's Special Hot Dogs was the nickname of uh, his little machine. And they kind of became a little popular thing amongst the other skybox holders around him where he kind of shared with the other skybox patrons around him. So that that was something that I think a lot of people had never heard about before. And I'm not sure I I had tweeted that before because it's it's a little bit of a longer story, but uh that's one of my favorites. That's something that just came to mind. Yeah, and Alan Shepard lived down the hall from I think it was either my mother or grandfather back in the nineteen sixties, which is interesting. And just to just to put it in for people that you know might not realize this, Alan Shepard, one of the original Apollo 7, he was the first guy to circle the Earth in a, in a spacecraft. Uh, he was the first one to orbit the planet. So Alan Shepard, uh, kind of a big deal, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about Jeff Bagwell going into the Hall of Fame next month because uh, I was wondering, are there things that you've had to do to prepare for this with Cooperstown? And is there anything behind the scenes going on in preparation for this? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes from an organizational standpoint, but that that's more or less being handled through our sponsorship department as far as like uh, the arrangements for, for people who are going and the accommodations and little get togethers that'll take place in, in Cooperstown, you know, it's associated with the with the club, that type of stuff. I, there has been a couple little things. In fact, uh, we, we had in our archives that, that Jeff did not have at home. And I saw him here one night. He was sitting in, in Reed Ryan's seats uh, right behind us where, where we do the authentication process in, in the on-deck circle. And he was back there, and uh, that day I had taken some items, some batting gloves, and I'm trying to remember what else it was. But it was something that came out of our archives, and I told him, I said, hey, he can – he doesn't have these. He can keep them. But but here, these these can be used for the display that they're putting together for the hall. But I think it was a jersey that that we had, an extra jersey that that we had from from the archives. And from that standpoint, it's it's been relatively small. But from you know, like like I said, from behind the scenes, more from the, the our our in house sponsorship department, they're they're more or less uh, doing all the special arrangements and you know what's what's happening with that. Well, this might be a little bit of a test for you, but what Jeff Bagwell related stuff is already in the Hall of Fame. I'm sure there's 
got to be some historic balls, bats, jerseys, stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I've never actually haven't seen a, an inventory as to what they have. I think they have – well, they did not have a batting glove with the, the hand protector. That was something that, that we gave them. But, yeah, they do have – I think they have a 2003 jersey in there. Uh, they might have one of his hats as well, possibly some cleats. Uh, it just depends on what they've asked for over the years. I'm trying to remember. You know, the Hall of Fame only asks for things – when something big goes down or something, you know, like I say 2003, because that's the year that we wore the space shuttle patch, the, the uh, space shuttle Columbia patch to commemorate the, the seven astronauts that lost their lives that year. So they, they wanted something from that. So I think they have that uniform up there, but I haven't really seen a detailed inventory as to what exactly they have. You're just a huge Astrodome supporter. And, and, you know, one of the things I was, Wondering is, and by the way, if people don't know, you've created a scale model of the Astrodome that you've shown around uh, to preservation groups. Tell me your love of the Astrodome. How is that working in conjunction with uh, trying to get something done with that? You know, what, what do you hear about that? And, you know, what, what, what's the affection with the Astrodome? Just, is, is it just, you know, the, the time that you spent there as a kid, you know, or, you know, you feel like this is for a greater cause, something bigger? Well, I mean, it's both. I mean, it's uh, the the Astrodome is, is a place that I grew up going to as a kid, you know, for Astros games, with the Oilers games, uh, auto thrill shows, rodeo. Uh, what else? I mean, there's there's so many different things. I mean, the Astrodome has been the place where Houston gathered, you know, and it was all uniquely Houston. I mean, it was a place that a lot of people felt couldn't be built. They felt that they were crazy to try to build it, to try to design it. I mean, obviously there was the idea of a dome stadium prior with the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, back in the fifties and uh, some talk of, you know, even a retractable roof type stadium, but no one really knew how to do it. And, and, you know, to get the engineering aspects and the architectural aspects and really start taking a, a hard look as to how you do it. Uh, the, the fact that they did it here in Houston, I mean, that's, that's what I was talking about earlier is, you know, why do we have the Astrodome? You know, I mean, the, the Astrodome to me was this fascinating building because you walk in and you see this massive roof with all the skylights and, you know, we're playing indoors, you know, and it, it's, it just looked different from other ballparks, you know, it's circular and some other ballparks just had a different look to them, you know, the older ones. And there, there was a very, uh, uh, you know, personal tie to that. My first Astrodome model I made was was in 1987. That was 30 years ago. You know, this is when I was a kid. It was just, you know, made out of poster board and just real simple, you know, Crayola markers drawn on there and cutting out little pie shapes for the for the roof and, and holding up the center with a, a PVC pipe. You know, that was it didn't even have the interior. It was just a, a shell. You know, it just wanted something to look like it. So, uh, you know, with, with the aspect of going there, spending a lot of time there, being fascinated by it, by learning it, learning about it and, and the uniqueness and, and what it you know, how it never been done before. I mean, it was twice as big as any, I mean, the Pantheon was in Rome was uh, the next largest structure. Uh, and even the, the Superdome that was built in 1975, I mean, that they always talked about how much larger the Superdome is, but I mean, the Superdome span of the roof is 670 feet. The Astrodome roof span is 642 feet. That's 38 feet. And if you were to put circle in circle, that's only a 19-foot concourse. So it was rather silly to, to say that. So, you know, just all those aspects and, and the fact that, uh, you know, I strongly believe that, that the Astrodome is, is Houston's 
signature structure and it you know put the city on the international map and has meant a lot to the city's growth over the past 50 years and and really is a, a symbol of the future you know back in the in the 60s and in the 50s you know Houston was was growing uh, the the manned space program was was you know NASA was being developed and had had just been established at, at Clear Lake and uh, the Astrodome really added to all that and really bringing Houston out of a, you know, the thought process of just being, you know, the old West and, and Cowboys. And, you know, that's what Colt stadium was, you know, that Roy Hoffines, when, when the franchise started really didn't like the Colt 45's name because he felt it, it stereotyped Houston too much. And he felt that Houston was on the move. Houston was growing. Houston was the city of the future. And so all of those efforts, the, the can do spirit to, to get that building done, you know, that that was just impressive to me. And, you know, you take things for granted as things become simpler in life. You know, it's just like having a, a phone in your hand that you can easily find information now that I mentioned, you know, back when I was a kid, you have to go to the library and look up, you know, the microfilm and everything. You start to take things for granted. And, and you sometimes, you, you, you know, you obviously do that without even realizing it. And that's what happened with the Astrodome. And things evolved. Um, you know, the, the Astrodome was over-engineered, a very sound, strong structure. Um, but, you know, after the Astros moved out, we had a, a new owner, Drayden McLean, who had just, you know, got on board in 1992. And by 1999, uh, we were done there. You know, he, he had established this new downtown ballpark with a retractable roof here at Minute Maid Park, and that was fine. But it really didn't speak – we didn't move out of the Astrodome because it was falling apart. We moved out of the Astrodome because the business model of baseball and sports had changed. You know, For all the, the fantastic things that the, the Dome introduced, such as uh, luxury boxes and restaurants and the, you know, the massive scoreboards and the entertainment value that, that went into – uh, you know, and also the comfort aspect of being inside and having air conditioning, uh, you know, you, that evolved into a, another generation of stadiums that, that, you know, we saw built in the late 80s and into the 90s and even into the early 2000s. So, you know, it was real easy for a lot of people to take the Astrodome for granted and, and really start to, to look forward. But it's it, it did. Like I said, it did not mean that the, the building was falling apart now. It certainly didn't look very nice, you know, for several years because it didn't have a, you know, we have an engineering department here at Minute Maid Park. We had an engineering air department at the Astrodome. And those guys, they were in charge of, uh, you know, painting and cleaning and making sure that the, the facility looked good. And, and for a long time, uh, there were certain contracts where, you know, outside companies had come in and uh, their job was to develop the Astrodome. And so you know, there, there wasn't some of that physical upkeep you know some of the things you could see on the outside and there was a lot of perception oh, it's falling apart and you know this and that but uh the, the building is i wouldn't i would not have supported the astrodome uh being renovated and continued in its life if it was falling apart they've had engineering analysis of this and to to test that and and the building has paid off for the amount of money that you're going to start to put into it a huge chunk of that would would be required to take it apart and then there's nothing there so you know i know a lot of people were very vocal about tearing it down and i, I think it's just a combination of misinformation that was out there you know what exactly the, the plan was who exactly was designing it who wanted to do this who wanted to do that uh, and, you know, the county's, Harris County's hands were, were tied for a long time. 
because they had these exclusive contracts with some of these outside uh, third-party developers that wanted to do something. So they, they had exclusive windows for those companies to do something, and nothing ever panned out. So county judge at Emmett you know, decided, look, we're going to take this in-house now. We're going to really uh, start to find a, a solution. Uh, you know, we're going to see how much money we're actually putting into the building and insurance and all the logistics and how we, what, you know, the power that runs through it and what the future can hold for it. And there's still a very large attachment to the Astrodome here in Houston, even though, you know, we haven't played major league sports there in quite some time, almost two decades now, you know, so the, uh, the, the plan to, to really Keep it as a building, keep it as a symbol of Houston, uh, but you don't need it as a stadium anymore. But it has such a, a huge, like I said, it just has meant so much to the development of Houston. I mean, at one point, Paris, the, the people of Paris, really, they, they considered tearing down the Eiffel Tower. After it served its purpose in the, in the World's Fair, they saw it as an eyesore. They saw it as falling apart. And they they had the... There was a group of people that had the foresight to to really say no. We're gonna we're gonna really develop it and and change the function of it and use it as a as a broadcast tower. So and now it's it's an international landmark and that's something that we've had here with the Astrodome since the 60s. It was an international landmark. So we're not really creating an international landmark. We're revitalizing, you know, Houston's first international landmark. There was even talk one time of tearing down the Alamo when it was privately owned. And this was back, you know, 60 or 70 years after the Alamo uh, was constructed and you know, several years after Texas won its independence. And so you know, th- these types of discussions, while it's never been done with a stadium before, I mean, it's that we're talking about a building that had never been done before. So I'm not surprised that, you know, the solution to, to revitalize it, you know, has has been so contentious, you know, and so emotional with with people. So it's uh, it's moving forward now. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to to raise the floor. So you you know we're gonna see the elimination of the the field boxes, the mezzanine seats. We're gonna raise that floor. We're gonna create two levels of parking. It'll be approximately 1,400 parking spaces below ground. When you'll be able to walk in the Astrodome at street level and enter a, a new performance you know event floor that can be designed pretty much for anything you can imagine and you'll be able to walk in one side and walk straight across whereas before you would walk in at level three and it was just a wall because the you would hit the the mezzanine seats from from underneath and there was a lot of office space underneath there where there were no seats but uh, when you move back some of the seating trays and and kind of you know there is going to be some demolition in there to to do this process you know you you start to open up a ton of space in there I mean I think a lot of people have also just thought of the the playing field as it existed that's not the case here you're talking about a space that is almost you know that, that'll be over 600 feet across. And so, you know, you hear about this, uh, you know, these festivals that are getting rained out here in Houston because of the weather. In the future, they can go to the Astrodome and use that. I mean, it's, it's going to be a new experience. It's going to be where you're no longer just coming into the dome and sitting in the ring of, of the building. You're going to be on the field. You're going to be on the floor. And you're going to be part of the events that, that go there. Just, just like when you walk into NRG Center uh, and, you, you know, you go to the livestock show, you know, and you see all the, the retail and the, the – uh, cattle and the livestock that they have in there or you go to the otc show those 
have that have been there. This is event space. This is overflow space. This just adds to that complex, and it and it keeps the uh, the building at the the center of all that attention. So, it's it's a good plan. It keeps the Astrodome multi-purpose, which was the original idea anyway with the, with the dome. I mean, obviously. To get the building done, they were trying to get a, a ball team here and, and really kind of cater it to the baseball team. But Roy Hoffines, in the grand scheme of things, always knew that the Astrodome had to be multipurpose, which is why they had movable stands in there. So they could go from football to baseball. And they could also put rodeo and put, you know, Grand Prix auto races in there and, and motocross and uh, all those other fantastic events. So it's not really reinventing the wheel. It's just updating the uh, a building and modernizing it. So, uh, you know, I think people are going to be able to, to still look at it and 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 see it as the Astrodome. And and over the past couple of years, Harris County did a real good job at uh, taking the the revenue that they took in from the seat sales, and they put that back into cleaning the outside, repainting some of the. The, uh, the walls and, and uh, you know, taking some of the grime. I mean, we see this grime from the Houston pollution on our freeways. I mean, if anybody who's ever sat in traffic, you look at the, the concrete rails next to you and you, you can see the Houston grime. I mean, they, they, they took all that off of the Astrodome. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just more improvements to come. So it's, uh, it's a good project. And I think people, once they get in there and, and really start to experience it again, they're going to be happy that we never really – got rid of it. I want to ask you a couple more questions. The first one I'm going to throw a Nolan Ryan curveball at you with this one. Yeah. Uh, who's the Astros player that you don't think is talked about nearly enough? Hmm. Of all time? Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I used to say that Terry Poole was very underrated. Oh, and yeah. and Ter- Terry Poole was uh, on some very talented teams, and you know he had a spectacular major league debut when when he made when he came out in the late seventies. Uh, you know he was a guy who I mean he saved Nolan Ryan's no hitter. He had a running catch in in the outfield, like in the the right center gap. It just seems that he was the guy who you always looked at Jose Cruz and Kevin Bass and Billy Hatcher came through, and there were some other guys that, that he lasted a different eras. I mean, he was there in the late seventies, the first playoff team. He was there when they started to to lose games again. You know, he was a mainstay there, and then even later in the transition to where you started to you know have guys like Craig Biggio and, and close to Jeff Bagwell's era. I mean, he was he covered a lot of time, and he was he was a guy that could come up and get you that that clutch hit when you needed and i just always thought that there was not enough talk about him you know you heard about the platooning with denny walling and phil garner you know in the mid 80s and some of the other transitions and of course with glenn davis he had all the home runs and stuff but you know terry Poole was was kind of a guy like like the way marwin gonzalez has been up until this year where he's getting a lot more attention now uh, where you know he you could put him in a, a lot of different places too you know he he didn't necessarily have to be in the outfield he was a guy that you know if you had to put him over at first base you could probably do that you know Marwin has a little bit more versatility uh, than than that in that respect but but they were you know I always felt that he was kind of an underrated player over the long span of time that he was with the club he was on the eighty and eighty six playoff team and if I remember correctly. He was eight for sixteen. He batted five hundred in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a guy that, that, like I said, he he was a clutch type of guy. But he very quietly did it. He he wasn't a, a you know still isn't a very flashy guy. 
uh, just, you know, real nice and, and approached the game the right way. Didn't have, you know, the crews, you know, going across the scoreboard, you know, or uh, anything like that. But he was a very, very solid player. And I'm sure that there's there's a couple others. I mean, you know, this team has been around for, you know, 58, 50, you know, 55 years. So it, it's it's there, there's many great players. Quite frankly, it, it's probably been a little bit tougher on a national scale, you know, with getting some of the, the Houston players the, the recognition that they've deserved over the years. You know, where the, the focus has always been on players, you know, that play for the Red Sox or the Yankees or the, the Cardinals, you know, and, and, and teams like that. There's probably been a, a few others that we could go over. Yeah, and there's also from that era, the, the underrated, I think, Billy Doran. When you talk about the great Astros second baseman, he's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle over the years with Biggio and Altulve and Jeff Kent. But yeah. Bill Doran, yeah. was uh, he was right there with, Ryan Sandberg is one of the two best in the National League. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he's a, he's the next target for Jose Altuve. So Altuve now is in the top 10 sole possession. He has a 1,125 hits, and his next target on the Astros' all-time hit list is Bill Doran. It, it's funny because when Bill Doran, it, this is this kind of shows you that time period, too. This is a little off subject, but, but we're talking about Bill Doran. The day that Bill Doran was traded, everybody, you know, people loved Bill Doran here in Houston and they couldn't believe, you know, but that was a transition period. You know, we started to, you know, Glenn Davis left and, and, the, you know, a bunch of the other guys who had been around for the eighties the and had a, you know, success here and fan favorites. But when the day that Bill Doran left, Oh, everybody lost their minds. And the next day, you know, when the news was out, that's when they traded for Jeff Bagwell. You know, it was another loss. It was like, Oh my gosh, now we've, we've traded Larry Anderson. And, you know, it's like no one gave a thought to Jeff Bagwell. No one knew him, but, everybody was still so emotional over the loss of, of Bill Doran. But, you know, at the time, rightfully so. I mean, Bill, Billy Doran was was a fan. I mean, he he helped uh, Craig Biggio in his transition to, to second base. You know, he was a guy that, that was uh, very important to this franchise for, for many years. You threw out the El Tule milestone coming up, and that, that leads me right into the, the next thing I wanted to get with you about, which was uh, are there some interesting Astros milestones coming up later this season what, what's the what should, what should fans look for well we're we're looking for Altuve is probably the the most exciting one just from the, the standpoint of how he's he's the first player born in born in the 90s to now be in the top 10 of the all-time Astros hits list and that's to me that's that's pretty fascinating uh, Bill Dorn is next at 1139 hits and you know he'll surpass that here in the next you know, a few weeks or hope, you know, should be around all stars somewhere around right in there. Uh, Jimmy Wynn is next on the list, but I mean, over the next couple of years, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy who has three seasons of 200 or more hits. And before he came around and did that, we had one guy, it was Craig Biggio, the, the guy who, who's at the top of the hit chart. He's really doing something special here in Houston. I mean, he's the fastest Astros player to 1000 hits and he captivates the the, the fans. Uh, the, you know, he. I watch him during the ball games too, and and you know, every time there's a foul ball, he you know he sees kids sitting there in the diamond club, and and you know these kids they come out with their parents, and you know they have tickets for that game, and you see different kids each night sitting down there, and he hands a baseball to these kids. So uh, he's doing something very special on the field and off the field, and he really gets it, and and he's a he's a great representative of the Astros, but you know just. Overall, this year, George Springer, he has 15 leadoff homers since last year. 
and he has like seven this year. So, you know, that's something that Craig Biggio did a lot too. So, I mean, there's a lot of things with, with this club, the dynamics of our, our current team that we have. I mean, they're off to the, the best start in franchise history. And, you know, we keep marking that on a daily basis and kind of comparing that, you know, to, to other starts and some of the other great teams that we have, you know, like in 86 or, or 80 and, and 2004 and, and 98. And you can go through a lot of those. And even in 99, they had a, a record very similar to us uh, here. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of continue. You know, we'll see where it takes us. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating uh, road that we're on. When fans go to Minute Maid Park, Mike, what do you think people should see? I mean, it's been around for a while, but, you know, things have been moved around. They add things and whatever. Uh, like as a, as a fan experience, you know, if you're, if you're just kind of wandering around, maybe something that somebody wouldn't think to look for or, you know, what, what would be the two or three things you'd go, I, I want to go check that out when I'm at the ballpark? I think everybody should see Union Station. You know, it's a 1911 train station that was, uh, you know, repurposed and, and renovated to to have our offices and conference center space and, you know, a team store in there and a cafe. I mean, it, I think that that's a very historical site that a lot of people overlook when they when they come to Houston and, and don't even realize that at one point Babe Ruth walked through there when he came through Houston and, and with the, the Yankees when they were here with the uh, the Houston Buffs and also the uh, the Democratic Political Convention that was here back in, I think, 1928. So it's a very historical site. And and I think that that's, uh, you know, it's tied to this modern ballpark. And, and it's just, it's it's almost seamless. And the, the if you look at the exterior Minute Maid Park, it's kind of modeled after the shape of Union Station from the south side. So I think that that's one place that people should go. I think another one is, is probably Home Run Alley. And, and out there where the, the home run porch is and, and just kind of hanging out over the field and really getting a nice panoramic view from center field and, and looking up at the roof. It's just a beautiful ballpark. When, you, know, you get two different aspects. When you have the roof open here, it is one of the most beautiful outdoor ballparks that you can have in baseball, in my opinion, because the roof completely rolls back. It doesn't stay over any of the ballpark at all. And it just it just looks fantastic. It looks great. And then when the roof is closed, there are certain times where, where I kind of feel almost like the, the days of the, the Astrodome a little bit, you know, where, where you're indoors. And, you know, we even use some of the same sound effects that we used to use back then at the Astrodome. So it kind of feels like that. But definitely now the the real place that people really need to check out is the center field area because that was something – you know, behind Tal's Hill and where that was, that was kind of a, a real big dead space on the concourse. But the way that that's been built out and the concourse has been expanded and, and the, the viewing platforms that are there uh, by the, the new Budweiser patio and upstairs where Torchy's Tacos and the elevator tower that, that's there with the graphics and the scoreboard that's, that's on it and the, the Astros logo above it that fires off, you know, the, the, uh, the smoke, you know, when, when we win after a game. I really think that the, it feels like a brand new stadium in that area. It gives fans uh, unparalleled views of the ballpark that we've never had before. And, and it's just a, a great dynamic area out there. So I think Coleman Alley, Union Station, and Center Field are the top three uh, places that people should really check out when they come to Minute Maid Park. And then, of course, you know, there's you can you have your, your behind home plate or, you know, you have down the first baseline where you can see the downtown buildings that are, you know, that have grown a lot over the, the past you know decade and a half that, that we've been here. Uh, so, you know, there's some, some really beautiful sites there. But I think from a ballpark standpoint, I think people should really check out those those other three areas. And is there any way we can 
get the Biggio and Bagwell statues to look a little bit more like Biggio and Bagwell? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all those types of things are artist interpretations. And, uh, you know, so, so they, you know, they, uh, they are what they are, but you know, it, it's, it's cool. And I think a lot of the, the, the purpose of art and, and sports art is to invoke the, the memory of, uh, something great that happened tied to that team. And, you know, when, when you're out there on that plaza and you, you see the, you know, the, the double play that's happening there between Biggio and Bagwell, you remember what that used to look like. And, and so it captures that image overall, as long as you don't look too, too close. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, it is a fun time to talk Astros right now. This has uh, been a, just a pleasure to talk with you, Mike. Astros authentication manager and team historian Mike Acosta. Thanks so much for doing this. And, and just it's been a lot of fun. It seems like the time just flew by. I think we've been on for an hour, but it, it feels like just a few minutes. Yeah. Well, anytime, Robert. I really appreciate you asking. For more interviews, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, or if you're an Android user, download our free Houston Sports Talk app in the Google Play Store. We're also available on Stitcher or the TuneIn app, and our website is HoustonSportsTalk.net.